Welcome to the Best of the Lens Season 3. I'm Ollie Barrett, and it has been a huge pleasure hosting the Lens UK Responsible Business Podcast over the last 12 months. This is really a compilation of some of the best quotes and moments from a most unusual year, where we made the move to speaking to our guests from home as we all stayed safe and socially distanced throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. So, just a few quick thank yous. Firstly, to you, our listener, if you're just discovering The Lens or if you've been tuning in throughout, we're hugely grateful to you for everything you do to support us. Secondly, to business in the community, our partners for the podcast, to Fujitsu, who power it, and to McCann, who have supported us all the way along our journey. Finally, of course, to our wide range of brilliant guests. In this episode, you'll hear voices as diverse as Claudio Janelle, head of AXA in the UK and Ireland, Jan Gooding, chair of Given, and who at the time was chairing Stonewall, and leaders from businesses from O2 to the co-op. I really hope you enjoy this special edition of The Lens, and this podcast wouldn't happen without The Lens listeners tuning in. So thank you, and do enjoy the best of The Lens Season 3. Anne Pickering and Ria Jahao. Anne is on the board of O2, the mobile phone company. Ria works with a whole range of companies to make them more successful, more inclusive and more diverse. Could be anything from I join, I go through my onboarding process, I get my first role, all the way through till I retire, for example. So what are those journeys that our people go from? And one of those in O2 is, you know, I need to take time out um, either for physical reasons or, or emotional reasons or parental reasons. And therefore, what is it that person, what support does that person need? How often do we need to keep in touch with that person? What's appropriate? What does that person want? Let's go and have a conversation because everybody's different and everyone will need different levels of support. But I think there's a bit of a stigma about, oh, the, you know, that person's out of the business. I shouldn't speak to them. Absolutely not. I said, go and speak to them and understand what sort of support might they need and then let's provide it. So we, we need to somehow lose the stigma of, oh, if I speak to him, it might be illegal. I've heard that before. Yeah. My, you know, my person's on, one of my people's on maternity. If I can't speak to her because that's illegal. Of course, that's not the case. But just find out what sort of support that person needs. And I think there's definitely a move to that. And I think it's nice to hear you draw attention to that too, because sometimes the overlap between physical health and mental health really encroaches. And when you're out of the business or you're sort of iced out, so to speak, and you're not spoken to, that return can be quite quite stressful and quite scary. And you sort of think in your head, have they been talking about me? Or, you know, I believe in how I returned to JP Morgan, I didn't have a desk because it's a quick turnover. And you can, from a business point of view, understand why. But as a person, it's not easy. What I would maybe say and where I think we're starting to see some change and where I am desperately think it's needed is there may well be those changes when you're in the business and the journey, but it's that access to get there that is really, really tough. Because so just say what you're talking about, access to... To actually have the opportunity because if you're, if you're judging graduates and, and a lot of the time they're not judged blind but they'll just be on experience so that other sort of biases can't come into play, it can be really tough because if you've had a leave of absence medically, you don't have to declare it, but you kind of do because otherwise it looks like it took you the extra years to graduate. So 
you have to explain that somehow. Or I guess the assumptions are reset year or something. So you, you do sort of have to say, even though it's not directly there. So that's really interesting. So the point you're making is that you can then be overlooked, unintentionally overlooked. Yeah. And it's the unintentional part that I think is really important here, because when you actually have these conversations with people, everyone thinks, oh my gosh, that's awful. That, that's not what we're doing. Well, that's not, you know, that's not what we're, we're aiming for here. But until you actually speak to the subset of people that it, that it impacts, you're not going to get these kind of conversations. Olivia Kramer, she is a deal crafter at The Craftery. A business has to have a mission or a cause for us to think of it as a challenger. And we've identified sort of five causes that we think are really pertinent to the world. So one of which is prospering sustainably. There's one about delivering good health. There's one about democratizing access. There's one about championing self-esteem. And there's one about progressing society. But we think that sort of cool brands come and go and there can be sort of cool brands that get scale, but then they lose the coolness. So you need something, a mission to bind the consumer to the business in the long term. And what you've done, and we're talking about the craftery here, if a listener wants to um, check it out, but you've focused, haven't you, on what you call CPG, consumer packaged goods. So for example... So uh, beauty is a a classic CPG category, food and beverage. So the way we think about it is if you can make these small differences across huge volumes, that's how you can have a, a sort of a really, truly big impact. Very, very interesting. So on that... Um Again, taken from the craftery itself, we have grown tired of phony brands that waste our time and the planet's resources. See, Greg's going to nick that one. Don't worry about that. Phony brands. What do you mean? Um, I think there's a lot of brands that sort of push consumption for consumption's sake. Um, I think fast fashion is a classic example of that. And actually, fast fashion is one of the most polluting industries. And there are ones where they're sort of just forcing the consumer to demand this newness. And we see that as phony because they're not actually tapping into a genuine need from the consumer. Jan Gooding is the chair of LGBT equality charity Stonewall. She's also chair of brand purpose agency Given become a better ally, if that's the right word. Um, And just help us into that in terms of do's, don'ts, things to be mindful of. Well, I think being uh, an ally is an incredibly important thing. And you need to come out as an ally. Because again, one of the things people misunderstand is this whole, why would you think I would have a problem? And my answer to that is, how would I know I wouldn't? So some of the quite trivial things are hugely important, like wearing rainbow lanyards, such a simple thing to do. But actually, that's a way of visibly showing uh, that you are either gay yourself or an or an ally. The rainbow laces campaign that, that Stonewall get behind has exactly the same effect. It's, it's usualizing Uh, the idea that people don't have an issue with somebody being LGBT and giving devices for them to demonstrate it. The second thing is to to educate yourself. You know, there are a lot of very good manager programmes that that companies offer so people can understand what are the specifics, for instance, around parental leave for same-sex parents Um, Is there anything you need to educate yourself on? So if you were to find yourself in such a conversation, you're not being clunky about it. So some of it's quite practical like that. And then I think it's about um, showing that you're interested to learn about the community more broadly. So most 
internal pride networks hold events. They have talks and they have film showings and they, and they will invite people to come on pride marches with them. So, for instance, Aviva used to sponsor the prides uh, in York and they used to attend Bristol and Perth and London. And that's a, an opportunity for quite more of the fun side, I guess, in a way of standing shoulder to shoulder with co colleagues and bothering to give up your Saturday in order to demonstrate that you're you're proud to be an ally and you're yeah. prepared to be visible uh, and, and, and there alongside your colleagues. Yeah, and that shoulder to shoulder image is very powerful. Joe, would you add any advice to that for a listener um well what, what jan said she really hit the nail on the head there um it, it's all about being visible for, for as, as an ally and, and literally coming out as an ally i think also allies need to be aware of the privilege they have which i think is very easy to overlook in the sense that there's no constant coming out there's no underlying societal pressure to do anything in most cases anyway and also to understand the impact of like sort of microaggressions things that that are, are said as sort of passing comments that they're not aware that actually really affect LGBT people. Sir Richard Lambert. Richard is the chair of the British Museum and he's also chair of publisher, famous for Harry Potter, Bloomsbury. I think one of the things that has changed in my working life, uh, which is now a pretty long one, is that the identity of a corporate with a community has been broken apart by a combination of things, which would include globalization, which would uh, include um, the chase for shareholder value and the priority that's been given excessively, perhaps, to um, short-term earnings growth. So, it, you know, I can remember a thousand years ago, there was a wonderful company called Pilkington's, mm -hmm. which was based in St. Helens. And mm -hmm. St. Helens- glass. Glass, it was flat glass. They were incredibly innovative. They invented flat glass, uh, float glass, I mean, think of that. Uh, and, um, and they had a global uh, monopoly in that, well, share anyway. Uh, and they came from St. Helens. And when, uh, I, I guess there was a contested takeover bid for them in, I don't know, I guess the 70s or early 80s or something. And um, the whole community rallied. And I remember coming down to London, the St. Helens silver band came and played outside the House of Commons to try and stop this terrible thing happening and it was stopped and then 30 years later uh, the Japanese came along and bought it nobody took any notice at all it was no longer a court company town it just went so I think um, changes that have happened in the uh, global business climate have made those sort of community things much harder of course there are organizations like business in the community which I've kind of worked with over the donkey's years and they are engaged with, but that strong you know roots they've been torn up and what about this wider potential for business to really rise to the challenges, not just through where it might give some of its profit, but through its core business to solve some of our biggest social challenges? How well do you think business is doing that? Because, of course, you have said, in fact, when you were running the CBR, you said, look, we, you know, we need businesses to engage with their communities to tell their stories yeah. more powerfully. And I just wonder if we can start to separate the rhetoric from the reality a little well, bit. Well, I think yeah, that's a good question. I mean, actually, I can remember when business in the community started, there were terrific riots in Liverpool, in Toxteth, uh, Liverpool. And uh, old Hezer Heseltine, who mm. was whatever he was, the, uh, the government minister responsible for trade and industry mm. business, uh, he took a bunch of business bosses 
up in a bus mm. and said, how do you think your company is going to do if this is the society you're growing up? Do you think your business is going to succeed mm. when people are in the streets throwing bricks through the windows? And all these bosses said, mm, that's, that's, and they hadn't seen anything like that before. I think it does matter. And I think we are seeing now a degree of um, unhappiness in the country. Mm. Lots of people thinking, what has capitalism ever done for me? Neil Dunn and Dr Siobhan Gardner. Neil is the chief executive of Polymateria and Siobhan is the climate change and environment lead at Deloitte. It's okay to fail, but what if it's something we're eating? What if it's something we're having in our house or in our children's hands? These risks are not acceptable risks. No, right? I mean, like, we're in this plastic mess at the moment uh, where design thinking didn't think about those waste streams and the impact it would have on the wider environment 50, 60 years down the line. Yet here we are. Um, That would probably be a failure um, of innovation. Okay, fine. Plastic has done amazing things to curb food waste of fresh produce and everything else. But we're now at a point where we need to just remake the wheel when it comes to packaging and obviously I'm sitting uh, next to someone who hopefully is going to continue leading the charge. Absolutely, redesign so you know, we could talk for a long time about this thought of responsible innovation I think, I think, I think we could but maybe, maybe just a thought on it. I think responsible innovation comes from listening to the academics and the NGOs and the broader stakeholders that you you maybe consider as an afterthought when you run a traditional business. You have a corporate affairs function and you have a sustainability or CSR report that keeps them at bay. Whereas I actually think the business of the future needs to do the exact opposite. You need to break the walls of your business down. You need to draw them in. There is important too because your customers will feed you insight. But stakeholders give you foresight. Stakeholders will tell you what the future of plastic is. And they will, if they're the right ones, they'll also tell you um, what the pitfalls are, what the unintended consequences are of maybe rushing too soon into PE coated paper, rushing too soon into aluminium or too soon into glass or um, when a Tesla of plastic was just around the corner. So I think your stakeholders being part of your innovation, part of how you bring technology to market and that ability to build an organisation that can really... Um, co-create together with them um, is, is, is really what, what it, it takes to succeed uh, in the decade of delivery. James Russell and Carlotta Jacquet. Carlotta is a coordinating ambassador for One Young World. James is the chief executive of Brisk. Absolutely. And when we went out and spoke to real small businesses to sort of get them to uh, either tell me I was just barking up at the wrong tree uh, or I was onto something, they sort of would say, James, I, I don't obsess about insurance. I know you guys do because you, you live it every day. But for me, protecting the business, one insurance is just one bit of it. I've got health and safety, training, uh, financial risk. I've got a number of areas that I have to keep an eye on. Yeah. And on that, you've also made me wonder, I talked about the virtual assistant tapping you going, you've got a problem. Can you also tell me when there's an opportunity or is that a bit out of scope? Absolutely not. I mean, open banking is is really exciting for us. I mean, we already connect to um, the business's uh, financial systems, but with open banking, we can start to get a really intimate view of the business. And just as those personal finance apps are doing to spot where you might be able to save money on your energy bills, well, let's do the same thing for small businesses. Cool. So just to remind us, open banking is where the government said that the big bank account providers have to allow the customer to open their account for other apps and so on and so forth. I mean, I think I've mangled that. Give me a better version. No, you're right. It is that. And those other apps have to be, uh, they have to have a license. So we work with a partner 
who is authorized to have access to that open banking data. And one of the things that we absolutely make clear to our, our customers and clients is we, we are using your data with your permission and whatever we do with it is for you. It's to put that power into your hands. We're not using that data for some other purpose. Yeah. Uh, and the feedback we've had from people was overwhelming. Wow, if you can look at my accounts and see if there's an opportunity to do something better or save some money, I'm open to that. Interesting. Carlotta, listening to you and James talking, you're both talking in different ways about this idea of sort of putting on almost like 3D specs or virtual reality glasses, seeing more things in order to evaluate a risk or an opportunity. I mean, are you picking up on that connection? Absolutely. And that was actually going to be a question that I have for James. I'm just fascinated by Brisk. I was looking at, you know, the website and how they operate. And uh, yeah, I'm just so keen to know more. Uh, and I was really thinking about uh, exactly, as you mentioned, Ollie, this aspect of having to dig a little deeper to really find out how things actually are. And I wonder whether this can be applied to sustainability, because what I see in my work a lot is, you know, to ask for us to really understand how a company operates and whether it's sustainable or not, or sort of what UN sustainable development goals it addresses or doesn't address. We really need to dig deeper into the supply chain. Um, equally, we have to understand, you know, what risks and opportunities um, this company may or may not be faced with. Mairead Mayer, Director of OpenReach in Northern Ireland. My second guest is Cherie Acheson, who today is Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Monzo, the Challenger Bank. The thing certainly from my Monzo work that I'm most proud of is the, and it sounds quite boring, but the, the implementation of a standard understanding of what privilege means across all of our senior leaders. Now, there's a reason why that's important, because what privilege means to me will mean something different to you unless we have a common educational space to learn about that. Now, to do that in Monzo, I rolled out a learning path that is mandatory now for all senior leaders, talking about how data and the, the bias-shaped society affects both internally and externally, how that affects your workforce and your processes, but also doing things that help open up the conversation on privilege, because these are the kinds of things that, those are the people that make the decisions, okay? And if they have a greater awareness of this, that bleeds down in through the organisation, and that's ultimately what we want. And that's something, you know, regardless of who's there, that has a huge impact because that will always be there. And and for somebody listening who's um, just been hearing about that for the first time, this is mandatory privilege awareness training. Give us a couple more lines on what that means and what someone could expect going into that. Yeah, so mandatory privilege awareness training. So it's not opt-in. That's the main part because then the people you need to go don't go. <laughs> um, and, then, and then that's no use. The point of it is to really help people understand how the world treats people differently based on X, Y, or Z. And taking it outside of just a gendered lens, but covering things like gender, ethnicity, um, English as first language, um, disabilities, neurodiversity, age, financial income, all of these different things that create a different layer on how the world either treats you or you respond to society. And again, creating a more level understanding, excuse me, from People that are in majority demographics, understanding what it's like for those that aren't, that are, you know, in the anomaly many on many, many occasions. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. Mairead, as you hear Cherie reflect on the most recent chapter, what bells is it ringing for you within the organisation? Each organisation has its own diversity challenges. What are you making of it? I have to say I 100% agree with everything that Cherie has just said, and I'm taking some notes as well in terms of things that I want to go away and think about for, for my own team and my own organization. 
In terms of looking at our open reach Northern Ireland team, we're a very heavily engineering organisation. We've been trying to focus quite heavily on the gender diversity over the last couple of years and very much trying to look at STEM subjects the whole way through from primary school, secondary school and encourage people as much as possible into an engineering career. Steve Morells, Chief Executive of The Co-op, one of Britain's best-known retailers. What I'm hearing in your explanation is a thought around resilience, that ability to withstand the first five years in a way that ordinary quotes businesses don't. But just many business owners would say, well, we all like to make a difference and cooperate. What's the special source within the co-op that you think makes it very different? Probably three things. Um as you say, it's in the name. We're a cooperative and therefore we're owned by ordinary people or people that work in the organisation. And most importantly, they all have a say in how we run the business. I think secondly, the purpose of the organisation is focused on doing good in society rather than maximising our profits but we equally know that the more successful we are, the more good we can do. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think finally, um, we're very much focused as a social enterprise around sharing more of the wealth and success that we create and putting it back into local life, keeping the success in the local economy and uh, making sure that we try where we can to close the gap between those that have lots and those that don't have much. Makes very, very good sense. Sounds a bit, Steve, like you're a, you're the listener-in-chief because of that unusual relationship with your members, and you have to lead. So how do you balance those two? Are you being told what to do, or are you telling people what to do? It's one of the, the fascinating um, parts of the job that I do. You're always balancing the need to be commercially successful, with the absolute desire to help society and make it a better place for everybody to live and work in. And we're constantly looking at both elements and we have mechanics that help us decide where we can go heavier in the areas of social good. Our vision, cooperating for a fairer world, points us towards skills and education a lack of spaces in local life, and championing important campaigns like loneliness, um, social isolation, mental illness. And these issues that we've seen play out in, in the last months quite a lot. Scott Sanders, Chief Executive of Link Cymru. My second guest is Emily Rose Jenkins, a geotechnical engineer with Transport for Wales. Is your top piece of advice for how to influence someone who technically is more senior than you and has more power than you? It's very tricky, (laughs) I won't lie. Um, I think it is being upfront and honest about what you really want to achieve and to be realistic about those as well, to take that advice of what they learnt, but also to kind of give a different perspective as well. I've seen before where it can almost be seen as stepping on people's toes by addressing, you know, issues. But again, it's kind of seeing, well, we all have something to add and diversity is key in decision making. So by having you know a different voice, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we can look yeah. at things from a different perspective. Excellent. I would love to ask Scott that same question. You weren't always a chief exec. You will have been an influencer <laughs> uh, on your journey. What's your top tip for trying to influence someone who's actually more powerful than you? Well, I'm always very much in favour of evidence 
And I don't think evidence is used enough in business, to be honest. My experiences over too many years now is that people's perspectives and personalities and positions seem to actually dominate decision making. And I think we're now in a world where we have so much data available and so much business intelligence available that actually people coming forwards, regardless of hierarchy, with something which actually demonstrates where that perspective has come from is a very powerful thing. Mm. Uh, and I'm certainly looking for more of that in, in my business. I foresee my business being far more about data driving decision making surrounded by personality and perspective, but mm-hmm. actually being the bedrock to the future. Claudio Janal, CEO of insurance and healthcare provider AXA. My second guest is the founder of Cooey Studios, an open innovation lab for large enterprises, Sandiso Sibisi. Which is the most difficult team you struggle to convince of your innovative product? So in your business, so which one is the most difficult? I don't know if you can answer that though, because they might not like you after this call, but I'd be interested to learn (laughs) (laughs) which team you struggle to twist their arm and like buy into it. It's a very good question, Dee. I I don't feel that I have to twist arms um, to get what we need to, uh, because within AXA, we can test and do things as we want. We are, as a country, a bigger, although AXA is huge globally, we have a lot of freedom to test and learn things within the country. So I don't feel... I have to force anyone to get them. However, having said that, where we are pushing a lot um, and have a lot of work is how we get everyone to do more, I think what you do, the design work, customer-led work, rather than the technical, uh, let's just do an insurance product proposition. Uh, I think and that's overall a big theme, how we move much more towards understanding the need, the, the customer problem we want to solve, and then building out from that one a solution rather than saying, well, we do excellent motor insurance, let's do more of it. Yeah. And Claudio, what about uh, Sandiso's theory that with certain innovative products, you won't see the financial return perhaps for many years? Does that make you have disagreements with your finance director, for example, from time to time? Or do you buy into this theory? We always have disagreements with the finance guy. Uh, <laughs> that's part of my job. That's the job description. Yeah, There's one, one someone who holds everything in order and someone who needs to push. Uh, and I feel my, my job is to push the limits to see what we can do. Having said that, though, on a serious note, I don't know if I mentioned it, but uh, as during my career break, uh, when I was uh, between two jobs, I founded together with colleagues uh, a startup in Switzerland that does basically mm-hmm. fintech. Uh, and one of the key things there is uh, just having cash flow. Yeah, it's basically, it's not even making money. It's just being able to pay the things we need to do. That's very different to a big business that we have. And that's, uh, and I think so this is much more obviously um, capable in this in this setup. But that's a very big difference to be corporate. Yeah. And she's absolutely right. We, we do measure, when we do innovation, the wrong things in big corporations. Yeah, well, that's incredibly candid as a reflection and really will resonate with uh, a listener, I think. My guests today are Penny James, Chief Executive of Direct Line Group, and Ivan Kaima, Founder and Chief Executive of Collaborative Community, Spieler. If I look at my young self, or I look at my daughter, or I look at lots of the young people that I deal with, the most striking thing is kind of a lack of confidence and self-belief. And when I look at and listen to Ivan now, to step out on your own and lead a business, a community, to lead anything, actually requires the courage to do something and being kind of relaxed with things not working and people judging you for that. And if I could give one thing to young people, it would be, you know, just don't worry about it. Just take a bit of a risk. I was going to ask you is sometimes you must get out of the bed in the morning, because I know I do, going, 
back in somewhere in that negative world because stuff happens. How do you pull yourself out of that? I walk into your virtual office with that great smile on your face because you've got to motivate a load of other people. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And, you know, you're right. You do have those days where you wake up and it's like, uh, you know, dull and drab and just so much negativity surrounding you. And especially during the times we're living in now, during COVID, and it's, it's even tougher. But then you wake up and remember that this is not about me. I represent these hundreds and hundreds of people who've come from the similar walks of life that I did. You remember that this is bigger than you. And when you remember that and have that, you know, I'm no greater than this. I'm trying to serve this. This is all about self-service. You remember that, okay, I can't give up because so-and-so is counting on me. And so-and-so feel how I feel, but can't express it or have the opportunities to express it the way I can or the way I'm able to. I'm representing people that look like me, uh, people that want to do good as well, want to change, want to be better, want to be the best version that they can. And using that is really what motivates me and keeps my passion alive knowing that we're helping people and people are genuinely becoming better people from this and so that is for me is a wonderful motivator well thank you because i will take that and bottle that because that will help me <laughs> ivan i'm keen to know your question for penny but first penny what would be your answer to your own question i think my overriding answer is actually something ivan said earlier i get my energy from people and you don't get many chances in life to make a difference and you'd, you know if you're in a role like this you have got a chance to make a difference so if I'm on a low, I tend to try and make sure I meet someone or see someone or talk to someone who's just in a slightly different space, who's not someone that I deal with day in, day out with. One of the teams, yeah. someone out there, someone like Ivan. My first guest today is the founder and chief executive of Starling Bank, Anne Bowden. As well as Starling coming to market, we've Manage to get the big banks to up their game. In that sense, you're a challenger to the status quo. Yes, yes. Yeah. So in that context, Anne, I get a sense of evolution, not just of banking, but of Starling as you go along. I just wonder what that word means and what it means in practice. More than anything else, we're a learning machine. And what we're very good at is launching a product very quickly, taking feedback, getting it better, and creating an environment where we're proud of the service we deliver. We're proud of our mission. And when you have this enthusiasm in an organization for doing a good job, it attracts the right people. People want to work for a company that means something and stands for something. So what's an example, Anne, of the sort of thing that at Starling, you as a leader would do or say that you feel your former colleagues within some very large organisations simply wouldn't relate to? Because you're very clear that you're doing things differently. And I'd love us just to bring that to life a tiny bit. And you can be as candid as you like. Yeah, okay. I answer customer emails myself. Sometimes the customers think I'm a bot and I go, no, it's Anne Bowden. Uh, and they set me sort of tasks to, and I have to prove I'm Anne Bowden. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I go on to Twitter and I think, oh God, that customer's got a problem. And I intervene and, and help. But at heart, I'm a technologist. I love technology. I love being able to do interesting things. And I think that we're an organization of people who know stuff, that are passionate about learning things and using the best tools and ideas to bring value to people. And we, we love what we do and we're proud of what we do and we're ambitious. And that's how Starling works. 
Chris Conway. Chris is the Group Chief Executive of TransLink, keeping the trains and buses and coaches running across Northern Ireland. He's also on the board of Business in the Community, the Prince's Responsible Business Network. TransLink effectively, am I right in thinking government-owned? You run it as uh, any well-run organisation, but essentially government-owned. Yes. So my question to you is, to what extent is leadership always leadership? Or are there certain new rules that apply when you change sectors? I think leadership is leadership. I find I've moved across a couple of sec- different sectors and, and I've worked at, at board level with uh, voluntary organisations as well and charities. Leadership is the same and, and all the companies I've been in. It's very much about developing people. It's about setting direction uh, for the organization. It's about knowing your customer. The bit that I find interesting working across different sectors is a lot of the time as a leader in an organization, you're solving problems. And, And when you work in different organizations, you see people and you experience different ways to solve problems. Maybe the same problem, but a different way of looking at it or a different perspective on how to solve a problem. Surely there is a piece of candid advice you would give to someone crossing the threshold into a government-owned organization that says, look, the rules are a bit different and here's what you need to know. Let's just cut to it. We're run very much like a private organization, um, but we've got those different environments that we're in. Um, In the public sector organization, you're owned by government, your main shareholder is government. So um, it means that accountability around governance is much higher. And you have a lot of stakeholders. You know, you've got devolved government here in Northern Ireland. We've also got local councils. We've got committees. We've got interest groups on both business and and transport. Uh, And to a certain extent, as CEO, I'm accountable to all of them. That was the Best of the Lens Season 3. Thank you to all of my guests for taking part. I've hugely enjoyed this year. The Lens will return throughout 2021, so please stay tuned for some more inspiring conversations. Thank you very much. Goodbye.